brain is a, like a master of deception. It seamlessly creates experiences for you and gives you confidence that these experiences reveal how it works when in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. This week, a guided tour of your brain with Lisa Feldman Barrett. I want to begin today's episode with the story of Einstein's brain. You're not going to believe this one. It starts on the evening of April 17th, 1955. After complaining of chest pain, Albert Einstein was admitted to Princeton Hospital. There, a few hours later, his aorta burst like a bike tire. He said a few words in German, took two breaths, and that was that. He was 76 years old. He asked that his ashes be scattered in a secret location. The last thing he wanted was for his final resting place to become a tourist destination. But when his obituary ran on the front page of the New York Times, it contained a detail that shocked Einstein's heirs. It turned out the body they just cremated was missing something. It's brain. They later found out the pathologist who conducted Einstein's autopsy, a doctor by the name of Thomas Harvey, had sawed open the dead man's skull harvested the brain, taken it home, and sliced it into 240 pieces, which he then stored in some jars in his basement. Unsurprisingly, Harvey lost his job, but he kept the brain for decades. By 1988, he was working on an assembly line in Kansas and living in an apartment next to a gas station. His neighbor was famed Beat Generation writer William Burroughs. They used to get together for drinks and Harvey would talk about the brain which he sometimes kept safe in a beer cooler. He explained how he was sending slices to researchers all over the world. Harvey hoped that one of those scientists would agree with him that Einstein's brain was worth studying. He believed that mapping its lobes, contours, and divots would reveal the secret of what had made it so remarkable back when it was up and running. In other words, he hoped he could reverse engineer the theory of relativity from those 240 pickled slices chilling in a beer cooler. In the end, a few neuroscientists agreed with him. They helped Harvey scrutinize Einstein's shriveled neocortex, the part of the brain where our rational thinking happens. Einstein's, it seems, had strange folds, which they concluded must have given him incredible mathematical ability. Too bad Harvey never met today's guest, Lisa Feldman Barrett. If he had, she might have talked some sense into him. The neocortex, for example, the part of the brain Harvey thought was responsible for Einstein's intellectual prowess, Lisa says it doesn't actually control rational thought, just like our limbic system doesn't regulate emotions. And our so-called lizard brain? She says that doesn't even exist. When someone comes along and says that everything they taught you in Biology 101 is bunk, you're bound to get suspicious. But Lisa Feldman Barrett is not just anyone. She's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University. She has appointments at Harvard Medical School and Mass General. And on top of all that, she somehow managed to find time to write a brilliant new book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's a highly entertaining user's manual for that befuddling blob between our ears. Okay, that's actually the last you're going to hear from me for a little bit because this interview with Lisa was conducted via Zoom by Next Big Idea Club curator and certified brainiac Daniel Pink. 
But let me say just one more thing before I go. Hearing two smart, energetic people talk about a great new book reminds me why we started the Next Big Idea Club in the first place. We wanted to create new ways for readers to discover incredible ideas. It's such a treat when it works out as well as it did in this case. I hope you think so too. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Lisa Feldman Barrett, it is great to have you here on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much. Where are we talking to you from? Where are you right now? It, it, it looks you have this like rich red curtain behind you. This is my home office. This is where I do all of my writing. Even much of my academic writing also occurs in this room. Nice. Okay. So, in, and that is in Newton, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston, literally right next door. The mean streets of Newton, Massachusetts. So, Lisa. <laughs> Now, this is like the most obvious question you ask in a book interview, but I want to ask this question, which is, why did you write this book? I wrote the book for a personal reason, which is, well, let me just say, there's never really one reason why you write a book, right? There are usually more than one. The personal reason for me was that I've always really loved essays, and I've always wanted to try my hand at writing essays. And that allowed me to fulfill another goal, which was to try to write science for the public, particularly for people who don't think of themselves as people who like science, mm -hmm. to really uh, invite them to learn some really cool stuff um, about how their brain works, and then maybe to use that information as a tool for a living. Since that really is what science is for, that's what philosophy is for, that's what history is for, and so on. Nice. Okay. So maybe we can focus our conversation on that. We can talk about, so what do we know about the brain and then how do we use that insight as a tool for living, as you put it in a very lovely way. So we start this book, you discover something that came as a surprise, I think, to me, to other lay people, which is this, is that it turns out our brain is not for thinking. What, Lisa? I know, so cool. What's though, going right? on? I what mean... is that about? <laughs> I know it's, but it's so cool. That's the thing. It's so cool. So oftentimes what scientists do um, when they're talking about brains and how brains work and so on is they look at adult brains and they compare them. But if you look at embryos and how embryos produce brains and you look at animals across the animal kingdom, some of whom, you know, their environment hasn't really changed very much in like 400 million years. So they themselves have not changed very much in like 400 million years. You can put together uh, a story about brain evolution. And when you look back to really just before brains evolve, just before a brain makes its appearance, you see this little creature, which I wrote about Amphioxus or a lancelet, which you can, you can Google them and look at them on YouTube. They're these really cute little they look like little fish, except they have gills for um, um, for breathing. And they kind of, you know, they kind of wriggle and then they sort of plant themselves in the sand and then they just filter food. And they don't they don't have a head. They don't have senses in the conventional sense and they don't really have a brain. And so if you actually look at how brains evolve by looking um, at 
at the evolutionary trajectory, what you can see is that as senses develop, as the environment for an animal gets bigger, which we call a niche, the body gets bigger and you get a brain. You can't really say why a brain evolved, but one of its most important jobs during this evolutionary um, trajectory is to control the body. Mm -hmm. And this story is very nicely consistent with what we can see in brain anatomy, not just in our brains, but really in brains in general, that in general, it tends to be the case that the parts of the brain that are most important, for example, for understanding language, for memory, um, for a lot of things that are important to being human, also happen to be important for regulating the systems of your body. So we've got this little, we've got this little creature, which you describe in the book as a stomach on a stick. Right. And that stomach on the stick, like all organisms, its goal is to survive. And, and the, it, like, like, like the goal of every organism is essentially to survive. Right. Well, to survive long enough to pass to pass your genes on to the next generation or sometimes sometimes scientists will say to pass your genes on to the next generation and allow those offspring to survive to reproductive age. OK, got it. So, so your your goal is to get your genes transmitted in some way, right? And, and a way to do that is, obviously, if you're dead, it's hard to transmit your genes. Right. So, <laughs> so being the that's biologist right. that I am, that's the, the, the weighty conclusion that I've come to. And so, um, and so the stomach on a stick is trying to survive. And you're, you're, you're saying that, the, that, that our brain is not for thinking per se, our brain is for budgeting, essentially. Just give us a little bit on what that concept means, because I think it's a really interesting... Sure. Uh, it's a really interesting metaphor. Our brain is not for thinking. Our brain is for budgeting resources. Right. So I think that the thing to understand the way that scientists work is that they often approach their topics of study with a set of beliefs or judgments that they hope that they put into the background. But one thing that you can see, I think, in looking at a lot of neuroscience work is that the, the, the characteristics that we value about ourselves as a species are the things that really sometimes guide our inquiry into how brains evolved or how they work. And we have uh, a story that really was bequeathed to us from ancient Greece, which is really a morality tale, actually, about how we understand when we're responsible for our behavior and who exactly is uh, the most responsible and so on, which was tattooed essentially onto the brain as an evolutionary story in the mid 20th century. And that's the story of, you know, you have a, a lizard brain or reptile brain for instincts and overlaid on top of that, you have what's called a limbic system, limbic meaning border. So these are regions that border the instincts for emotion. And these two together are your inner beast, this roiling, you know, inner beast, which has to be controlled by rationality, which was assigned to your very big cerebral cortex. It's a great story. It's just that it doesn't actually comport with what we know about brain evolution. Oh, let me let me see. Let me see you and raise you with your own words there, Lisa. You say that this idea of a triune brain, that is the lizard limbic and neocortex, yeah, the triune part, brain yeah. is one of the most successful and widespread errors in all of science. Yeah, I stand by that. <laughs> I stand by that claim. And I stand by that claim because this myth is the foundation of the legal system in the United States and in many legal systems in the West. 
it's the foundation of economic theory. So, you know, now economists acknowledge that we're not always rational, but we're often irrational. But still, there's this idea that your brain is a battleground um, for emotion versus reason. And you can't look at the brain, you can't look at any brain, but you certainly can't look at a human brain and say, well, these parts are for emotion and they're battling these parts for, um, for rationality. Even though scientists do this all the time, it, it just makes no sense from an anatomical standpoint. When you look at the structure of the brain, it doesn't make any sense based on the um, functioning of the brain and so on. And the irony here, right, is that scientists pretty much had discovered by um, the mid-1970s using genetics, molecular genetics, and other, other kinds of tools that allow um, us to peer deep into the mechanisms of cells, they knew pretty much then that the brain didn't evolve in sedimentary layers like sedimentary rock, or as I prefer to think of it, you know, it's like the, the birthday cake view of the brain. Like you've got this already baked cake of um, instincts and emotion on which you overlay icing, which is the cerebral cortex. And your brain doesn't work like that. It's not structured that way. It didn't evolve that way. But yet, you know, Carl Sagan put it into a book that won a Pulitzer Prize in 1977. And poof, we have this story, which appears still in many textbooks in medicine. And mm. it, you know, like I said, it's the basis of the law. It's the basis um, of economics. It is in hundreds, if not thousands of, uh, you know, leadership training uh, courses um, in industry. And it's false. And the punchline here is that we have the only creatures with a lizard brain are lizards. lizards. Yeah, and, and that, exactly. And that you and I and all the and all our other bipedal brothers and sisters have one brain, not three. Exactly. Well, give give us a sense. How are our brains like and unlike other organisms? I think this is really cool stuff. So there's this um, scientist, neuroscientist. Her name is Barbara Finley. She's one of the smartest people I know. She's really quite brilliant. And she's discovered by studying mammalian brains, so cats and dogs and rats and elephants and so on, that all mammals have the same neurons and they have the same developmental plan for their brain, which is 271 stages that begin with an embryo all the way from there to, you know, the, what's considered to be the finished, the finished stage of an adult brain. And so what she's discovered is that in these 271 steps, every species she's ever studied of mammals follows brain development in exactly the same order. And what's changing really is the duration of each time mm -hmm. point, how long it runs for. And so when, when a time point runs for longer, that stage produces more cells or more wiring or whatever is happening at that stage. So that's what's similar, meaning when you look at a rat who doesn't look like they have very much, you know, of a cerebral cortex and you look at a human who looks like they have a lot or an elephant who looks like they have even more, what's happening actually is that the, the, the brain was formed from exactly the same plan. And the really cool thing, if that isn't cool enough, is that when you look at at other vertebrates, that is other animals that have a backbone and a head, because it turns out a head and senses are also innovations of the vertebrate line. When you look at animals who, who are vertebrates, it looks like they 
pretty much follow the same plan. Maybe not exactly, but, but, but pretty close. And so what that means is that out of this single plan, you can get all these brains which look differently to the naked eye, but whose neurons are largely the same. They're just configured in different ways. And um, the neuroscientist George Streeter wrote in his book on brain evolution that as brains um, grow, they reorganize like companies. And so that's why it looks like we have this really big cerebral cortex, whereas a mouse looks like they have really a very small one and an iguana looks like, you know, maybe they don't even have one at all. Despite that fact, the neurons are pretty much the same. And that's really cool. Right. I think that what you're saying is that our brains have a lot of similarities with other uh, vertebrates, at least, um, that we're following the same basic plan. Uh, We have the same basic brain cells, neurons. Um, It's just that the conditions in which they evolved are different. And that leads to differentiation that our brains are. I mean, our brain like I mean, here's I mean, this is the kind of thing that makes that makes people don't know anything about science crazy. I mean, I'll read you one of your lines when you say, you know, our brains are not more evolved than a lizard's brains. Exactly. Lizards are really well adapted to their niche and we're really well adapted to ours. But our niche, I mean, there are only one class of animals, I think, who have larger niche than we do. And that would be bacteria and other single cell organisms. We have a huge niche, right? And that's, you know, partly related to the fact that our brains are born under construction and it means that brains can wire themselves to their world. The other thing that's different about a human brain is that our brains are super expensive, metabolically speaking. Our Mm. brains are about 20% of our entire metabolic budget. A chimps, for example, is about nine. So that's that's a huge increase. And the reason why it has to do with the functioning of neurons in particular parts of the cerebral cortex that allow us to um, reason abstractly. So those are the two big, big differences. There are others, but those are the two big ones. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. You made it through the ads. Nice. Now let's get back to the conversation between Daniel Pink and Lisa Feldman Barrett. Okay, so here's what we know so far. We know that our brain is not for thinking. It's essentially a CFO of our bodily budget regulating things, making sure we survive and pass our genes to the next generation. All this stuff that you all have heard about the lizard brain and the limbic system and those three layers of brains and the higher level, keeping the others in check. Eh, not true, says says Lisa. All right. So we've not just me. Two. I mean, it's not you don't have to listen to me. You can go read. No, the actual you're, listen, listen, li- listen to you as the representative of yes, neuroscience, yes. not corporate trainers. 
uh, who have a slide of a lizard. Um, something else I found interesting about this, and it's germane to my life right now. So I am having a problem with my computer today, no joke. Uh, my hard drive is, is filling up for reasons I can't understand. Now, I had always thought truly that the, the, the way our brains make memories is similar to what happens on my hard drive on my computer, that memories are somehow stored in our brain. And you say, uh-uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I think it's been known for some time that what your brain is doing when it's remembering is it's reconstructing a, a past experience in in the firing and you know conversation between neurons. Unfortunately, the very people who did this seminal and really quite amazing and important work also continue to use language like, you know, that memories are stored and retrieved. So memories are not memories are not stored in your brain and they are not retrieved like file folders or like files. Your brain is, you know, made of 128 give or take billion neurons plus other cells called glial cells. And the neurons are basically passing information back and forth to one another in a pattern. And so when your brain is remembering something, when you remember something, when you imagine something, when you think something, when you feel something, no matter what is happening, what your brain is doing is it's re-implementing patterns from the past. And your brain can do this in a, what's called a generative way, meaning your brain can take bits and pieces of past experience and combine them in new ways. And so always it's the case you could say that your brain is constructing or your brain is re-implementing or your brain is um, rebuilding um, experiences from the past. And that is what memory is, actually. It is not retrieving, it's, it's assembling. So if you, were to, if you were to ask me, if, you, if, if at the moment right now, so inside of my head, I'm remembering mm -hmm. the best uh, basketball game I played in seventh grade, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm, actually, mm -hmm. I'm actually assembling that. I'm not going into the hard drive and saying, Correct. and pluck 1979 yeah. or whatever, here's Correct. what. But, but here's a really cool thing, Dan. Yeah. So, so take that basketball game. Yeah. Can you conjure any like sites? Like, can you, re can Absolutely. you remember? And yeah. So you can see certain things that you saw. So here's the really cool thing. When you have a memory, when you're remembering and you see something in your mind's eye, your brain is changing the firing of its own neurons. So you can see something in your mind's eye without any visual input. So like when you hear a song going through your head that you cannot get out of your head, no matter what you do, what's happening is that your brain is, is reassembled the neural pattern. So it's changing the firing of your, the neurons that are important for, for hearing, for audition, so that you hear a song in your head, even though there's no song playing out in the world. And different scientists have called this process different by different names, memory, it's sometimes called simulation. It's sometimes called imagination. It's sometimes called perceptual inference. This is sort of how you know that a process is really important in science because a bunch of scientists give it different names, but really they're all talking about the same thing. The whole book, I have to say, is, is just so well done. Uh, it's written with such clarity uh, and such concision. It's really quite remarkable. It helped me understand so much. That's why I love this book so much. But I really love the the chapter on on babies' brains. 
so so let's so let's let's spend a little bit of time on that. Other species, when when the, the youngsters are born, their brains are fairly completed. Human brains are under construction, as you say. Tell us what you mean by that, and then tell us how that construction happens. And I think surprisingly, for how long? Yeah. So think about uh, like uh, a horse or a calf, you know, they're born and within an hour, they're up on their feet and walking around. Or you think about a chimpanzee, like, which they're also really adorable, right? They're these tiny little things and they come out, uh, they're born and they can, within an hour or two, they're clinging to their mother's um, fur. Now, these animals, their brains also will develop over time too. But when they're born, their their brains are a little more, they're a little more baked than ours, okay? When a human is born, the human brain is really incomplete. It has all of its neurons, more or less. There are some parts of the brain that are still birthing neurons throughout your whole life, but very few where you have new neurons being born. Largely what's going to change is the wiring. It's the how neurons are connected to one another and how they speak to each other. And, you know, little babies are, they can't even burp by themselves. I mean, they can't do anything. <laughs> so we didn't, we, we didn't really get into the details of body budgeting. But I think the thing to say is, you know, your brain and my brain and most adult brains, neurotypical brains can regulate the, the, uh, the body they're attached to, not completely by themselves, but, but to, lo- to a large degree. Babies' brains can't do this. The wiring isn't complete. And so the brains are waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world. Those wiring instructions partially come from the physical world. So the physical world, that is the sights and sounds and smells and so on, that a baby is exposed to will influence um, that baby's, the wiring of that baby's brain. But to a surprising degree, the wiring also comes from the from the infant's social world. Mm-hmm. That is the extent to which you make eye contact with the baby, the extent to which you speak to the baby or sing to the baby, whether you carry the baby in front or on the back or in a stroller, whether you put the baby to sleep, um, rock the baby to sleep or allow her to, to go to sleep on her own, to learn to go to sleep on her own. All of these things are, ev- in fact, everything that you do is creating a world, curating a world that will wire that infant's brain. And this continues more or less for about 25 years. So the idea here, what scientists have discovered is that although there are some parts of the brain that develop a little more early and some that continue developing for a longer time, Generally speaking, it takes 25 years to fully bake an adult brain, human brain. Yeah, that, that makes me feel better about my first 25 years. <laughs> uh, so, but, it, but you know, when, when you talk about a tool for living, this is, this is the one area where I think it, it gives us some instructions on, on how to configure society in some way. Because what, what, you, what you're saying essentially is, is that baby brains, kid brains, are not miniature adult brains. That's right. They're still under construction. And the only way they can complete construction effectively is through inputs from the outside world, from their social environment, but also from their caregivers. What, what you're saying is that we have this period where the, those of us who are adults have an effect on the development of children's brains. To me, I read that and it's like, why isn't 
more public policy geared toward that very end? Why is why don't we have as a central aim of public policy the nourishment and construction of tiny brains? Exactly. So now I'm going to take off my lab coat. Good. And I'm going to echo what you said, and I'm going to add to it. Go for it. In the United States, we have laws about foreseeability, that is, foreseeable harm. If you get behind the wheel of a car and you are under the influence of alcohol, you are held responsible for any harm that you bring to another person because you should know that drinking doesn't, you know, if your alcohol level, blood alcohol level is too high, you won't be able to control the car very well. That's why people are convicted for drunk driving. So the same thing is true of poverty and neglect. And when I say neglect, I'm talking about extreme circumstances. So poverty is a foreseeable harm for an infant brain. No there question. Is no, this is not metaphorical. When So this is, and there are no studies that deny this. There are certainly are some kids who are more resilient than other kids. That's, there's no question about that. And that's an important, that's an important topic for study, but all brains are harmed. Meaning even if you take a resilient kid, if that kid, if you grew that brain in an environment that was enriched, that brain would do much better than it would otherwise. And it also means that things like separating children from their caregivers under any circumstances, other than if the caregiver can't care for the child or is abusive to the child, is just not justified. It's just not justified from the perspective of a developing brain. I'll see you and raise you. I'll say that it's an act of overt harm. Yeah, I think it's an act of overt harm. It's what I would say is it's an act of foreseeable harm. Okay, it's better an act said. of foreseeable harm. Yeah. And and to to add sort of insult to injury, the um and um, I'll just say this and then I'll try to put my lab coat back on. You know, um the National Academies of Sciences did a study on childhood poverty and um, showed that it would actually be cheaper. It's not going to be cheap to solve this problem, but it would be cheaper to solve to solve childhood poverty than it is to deal with the consequences of that poverty 20 years later when those little brains are now young adults and engaging in, you know, behavior that maybe, you know, otherwise is, is not really advisable. The way that I decided to try to talk about this, since politics gets in the way of morality, of discussions of morality, should just talk about it really in pragmatic terms. If you're a business person, you're a business leader, you should care a lot about this because those kids are the workers of the next generation. So just from a human capital standpoint, this is nuts. It's really, really nuts. And it's like, it's like pouring human capital down the drain, basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean to me it's it's so compelling and and the other, so it's compelling as a public policy matter. It's also compelling in the way we think about things as as a again getting back to your idea of a tool for living uh which is that um we like to talk in these simple-minded terms about nature and nurture. Um and and uh, there's a guy named at Yale named Craig Wright who's a a musician and he teaches a course in genius and on the first day of class 
he, you know, when we're talking about whether genius is nature or nurture, he has a student stand up and say, there is no answer. There is no answer. There is no answer. You have a more nuanced response to that, which I think is, which helped me sort this out, which is that nature needs nurture, nurture needs nature. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's, it's not that there's no answer. It's that there's more than one answer, but all the answers have something in common. And that is that we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. We have the kind of genes, in fact, most animals have the kind of genes that are turned on and off by their environment. So, you know, initially when scientists were studying genes, they found that like I think between five and 10% of the DNA in our bodies are genes and the rest of it they called junk because they, because they weren't genes. But it turns out what lurks in that junk makes you who you are. Though that, that junk is really for what's called epigenetics. That is how the environment turns on and off genes to make you who you are, the you know, and so this is really, really important. Um, that for the most part, um, genes are necessary but not sufficient cause of anything about you. So environment is important, and I think here it's important to say, you know, anyone who's really interested in this might want to read some work by Alison Gopnik, the psychologist who's at Berkeley, because she she's written several books which are terrific, but one book in particular called The Gardener and the Carpenter. Yep. And she basically makes this point that, you know, we want to um, create an environment, curate an environment for our kids that will let them become who they're going to become, not to train them to be, you know, a world, you know, class cellist or a world class pianist or a world class physicist, but give them a lot of opportunities to experiment, to discover, to play in a way that will help them um, find their own path. And the goal here is to um, just in the same way that you would fortify soil in order to let lots of different plants grow, you know, you want to give kids enough input um, to let them figure out what they, um, you know, what, what their strengths are, what their desires are, what their um, enjoyment is and, and passion is and so on. Yep. And especially for, for kids who are less well off, who are living in more barren environments, you want to have the nutrients in the soil. You want to have the sunshine, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, like, like exactly. it's not even, it's yeah. not even, it's not even, it's, it's almost pre-gardening in a sense in that it's the basic, the basic elements that allow oh, yeah. uh, those, those, those young plants to survive. The key idea here, I want to summarize this before we move on, is yeah. that um, little brains wire themselves to the world that we come into the world with our brains under construction and that our environment, our caregivers and, and the, the social world help us construct those brains. And it's a long process. Uh, it's a it's long process. 25, 25 years, 25 years to build that brain. That gives you a sense of what the complexity is. Now, here's something else that blew my mind. I guess I can use that phrase here, although I don't even know like where my brain is and where my mind is right now. But here's, a, so, so you say this, Neuroscientists like to say that our day-to-day -day experiences are a carefully controlled hallucination. <laughs> All right, so I'm hallucinating now. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, so remember when we were talking about your, your basketball game that you remembered? Yes. Yeah, and in your mind's eye, you could sort of see things that were a little bit similar during the game and maybe hear things and, and so on. What you, and your brain, what your brain is doing is it's controlling the firing, changing the firing of its own neurons to conjure those, those experiences for you. 
So that's actually how your brain works all the time in, in everyday life. That is what your brain is doing all the time. To us, it feels as if we're, we see stuff and we hear stuff and then we react to it. But under the hood, that is not the way your brain works. Instead, what's happening is that your brain is constantly making predictions. It's constantly reassembling past experiences to predict what's going to happen next, to predict what you will do next, to predict what you will see, what you will hear, what you will feel, and so on. So it changes the firing of its own neurons as a way of predicting. And then sense data from the world, the, the wavelengths of light that are sights and the changes in air pressure that become sounds and so on. This sense data reaches your brain. Same thing with, you know, sense data from your body, from all that body budgeting that's going on, from changes in your heartbeat and in your the expansion of your lungs and from your immune system and so on. All of this sense data reaches your brain. If your brain is already firing, its prediction matches the data that's coming in, then your brain's already firing in a way that would capture that input. So the sense data from the world just confirms the prediction and that becomes your experience. No more information makes it into your brain if you've predicted correctly. So it is a, a hallucination that is controlled by anything outside your brain. Because our brains are prediction engines in a way. Now, now let, let, let's, let's, uh, there's a great example of, uh, in the book, I think this really makes the case. Okay, we'll use me as the, as the, as, as the participant here. I'm thirsty. Come back from a run. I'm thirsty. <laughs> I drink a glass of water. Want to know what happens to Daniel when he slakes his thirst? Stick around. We'll be right back. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the show. Daniel just asked Lisa what happens in his brain when he drinks a glass of water. Yeah. So I love this. Um, so, um, yeah. So when you're thirsty and you drink a glass of water, you know, you drink until your thirst is quenched. So you might drink a whole like eight ounces or 12 ounces of water from a glass. Your thirst is quenched. The thing is that the water takes about 20 minutes to make it into the, your bloodstream to get to your brain to say, hey, you know, hydration complete. So what is happening then when you feel a, your thirst is quenched immediately? And the answer is we use thirst usually to mean something physical, but thirst is an experience. And really what we're talking about is the hydration how much water, how, how much water is in your body and how much hydration do you have? Same thing with hunger. We talk about hunger as being um, this physical thing, but hunger, pain also experiences, but there are physical components to those experiences, like how much glucose do you have in your bloodstream, for example, or in the case of pain, how much what's called 
nociception that is signals about tissue damage, how much is that coming from your body and reaching your brain? So what's happening here is that based on a lifetime of experience of your brain learning an association between drinking water and a change in the osmolarity of your blood, your brain is predicting. So basically, it's if we were to stop time right now, just stop time, and we would look in, peer into your brain, your brain would be representing things as they are in as what it believes to be the world right now and what's happening in the world in your body right now. And it's making a prediction based on these, what's going to happen next. So based on drinking water, your brain is predicting that your thirst will be quenched, but actually it takes um, about 20 minutes for that change to happen. Similarly, when you eat, if you eat very quickly, your brain is predicting that you're going to be full or not perhaps um, but it takes about 20 minutes, actually, for the actual information about glucose concentrations to make it to your brain. So if you eat slowly, there'll be more of a correspondence between um, what you're eating and what your brain is, is um, computing about the amount of nutrients that you're taking in. If you eat really quickly, there's going to be some lag um, between you know, how much you've eaten and, um, and what your brain is tracking. So, so eat slowly, eat slowly, young men and women out there. Um, yes, eat now, slowly. But this is quite fast. So, so, so in other words, it's to put up to, to, to sum it up here, our brains, it's crazy. Our brains yeah. don't react. We predict. And this happens out, completely outside of our awareness. Completely outside of your awareness. Yeah. Well, so, but here's another one that I just learned actually, which I just totally love. So you know how you're walking outside and, you know, you feel a, dro a drop or two of water on your skin and, you know, you, and you realize, oh, it's going to start raining. Okay. Your skin, my skin doesn't have actual wetness receptors at all. Hmm. So where, where is this experience of wetness coming from? Like when you go out for a run and you feel all sweaty, you actually, your skin has no wetness receptors. So how do you, how do you know, how, how is it that you're experiencing wetness on your skin? And the answer is... Well, your brain is making predictions about temperature and about touch for which it does have receptors. And it's mm. using that information to weave together in a complicated calculus, the experience of wetness. So talk about a hallucination, man. That's like completely, you are experiencing something for which you have no receptors. I mean, like, that's just amazing to me. And I just, I just love things like that. It is. It is interesting. I hadn't thought about this. It is a form in some ways of extrasensory perception. Yeah, for sure. If you think about it, I mean, literally, if you look at the, you know, the, the literal meaning of extrasensory, um, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, let, let's um, I'm going to move on to something else here. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about the implications. Uh, I think one of the interesting things in this in this book that I didn't expect to see, uh, and maybe it's my own you know, bias stereotype, is uh, the importance uh, in a book about neuroscience about words. Uh, in particular, uh, about how much our brains are, they, they, we wire ourselves to other people's brains. And because of that, words have a pretty significant impact on us. Tell us about that. Sure. So one of our great adaptive advantages as species is that we have language. And that means that we can communicate with each other very, very effectively um, which is important for our ability to learn from one another. So you don't have to experience everything yourself in real time in order to learn about it. You can observe someone else. Somebody could tell you a story 
You can hear about somebody else's experience and you can learn from that. So it's a very, very powerful tool that we have. And words also have other um, really amazing abilities. So for example, even with a child as young as three months old, you can say to a child, look, sweetie, this is a wog. And then you put the wog down and it beeps. And now you take something else, which doesn't look the same, doesn't have the same shape, doesn't, there's nothing about it physically, which is the same. And you say, look, sweetie, this is a wog. And you put it down and the baby expects to hear it beep. What does that mean? That means that babies who are pre-verbal are using words to form abstract concepts where they can look at a bunch of objects that don't look the same. You know, their, their surfaces aren't the same. There's nothing really physically about them that's the same, but the baby understands that they have the same function, that they perform the same function. This is a really remarkable thing. So how does this happen? And I don't think we know all the answers, but one thing we do know is that the parts of the brain which are most important for language also happen to be the parts that are most important for predicting, hmm. to, to launch the predictions in your brain, and they also happen to be the parts that are doing that body budgeting. So the parts of your brain that are most important for body budgeting, for regulating your breathing and your heart rate and your immune system and your metabolism and everything that goes on inside your body, those same brain regions are really important for the ability to understand language and to form sentences and communicate. And that means that words are really important in body budgeting. And that has both positive and unforeseen negative implications, especially now when we live in a culture that, you know, um, there's a sort of casual brutality to the communications that people have with one another. Well, so this is another mind blower to me, at least. And this and I, and I say this as someone who was a linguistics major uh, in college. The idea that words are a tool for regulating bodies is, to me, a remarkable concept. It's, I mean, I spent four years studying linguistics, and that really was not part of how we thought about things. Um, but it makes perfect sense to me. Now, going to, let me just build on what you were saying before, because there's a lovely line in here that I want to read back to you here. The best thing for your nervous system is another human. The worst thing for your nervous system is also another human. So I think that's sort of where you were going on, on this, about yeah, how we exactly. treat each other. Exactly. So I think that, you know, we are a social species. Um, we Lots of people have written about that. You know, we evolved to support each other and, and so on. But being a social species really means that, amongst other things, that we aren't just caretakers of our own body budgets. We're also caretakers of other people's body budgets, whether we like it or not, <laughs> and whether we realize it or not. That is actually how things are working under the hood. And so I can text three little words to one of my closest friends who lives halfway across the world. And um, she, uh, you know, I can change her breathing and her, um, and, you know, her heart rate. And in fact, today I published an, an article in the New York Times and I got a text message from a really close friend of mine saying, I could hear your voice in my head. And it immediately gave me this really, really warm, tranquil feeling. So basically, you know, 
Or you can read the Bible or the Quran. You can, you can read words from, from millennia's past and find great comfort in those words. And what does that mean under the hood? It means that those words are regulating your body budget. But, you know, the flip side of that is that things that you say can be like, figuratively speaking, a withdrawal out of people's like, mm-hmm. body's budgets. And the same is true um, for you, that people, the way they speak to you, whether, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with being a, a snowflake or, or weak. It, you, this happens because you're human and you have a human nervous system. And so what this means for us really is that we have a fundamental dilemma in this country and in other countries that really value individual rights and freedoms. And that is that we have socially dependent nervous systems where we are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems, but we really value um, free speech and on their individual rights and freedoms. And the thing that I find so kind of troubling as a person, but maybe fascinating as a scientist, is that people can't discuss this at all. I mean, if you even try to raise the issue, people become, uh, a lot of people become really irate. And yet, I think it's really something we have to be talking about. um, Because whether we talk about it or not, the the biology is what it is, and the consequences will be what they will be. Um, and, and so we should be talking about it and we should be trying to figure out what this means for us in uh, what it means for public discourse and what it means for, um, how to get along. And I just want to say as a caveat, you know, I'm not saying people can't disagree with each other and I'm not saying people can't debate. Certainly nobody would ever accuse me of saying that. Um, uh, but, um, but it really does matter how we speak to each other. It matters to whether or not we are, I will say how much of a, of a withdrawal we're making out of someone's body budget. We have a, a right to s- speak our mind. We have a responsibility sure. to treat other people with dignity. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think it's not much more complicated than that. But it's but but what you're making here, Lisa, which I think is profound, is that you're making a, you're essentially you're making a scientific case for that. And if you go back to those old stories that we the word the ancient words, whether from from any religious tradition, essentially tells us that. Um, exactly. So, so let's take a f- final few minutes here and talk about this. So, so we've got seven and a half lessons about the brain. We know that our brain is a network. We know that it's a prediction engine. We know that babies wire themselves to the world, and that's how they develop. We know that all of our where our brains are, our brains are, our brains are social. Uh, our memories are assembled. Uh, there isn't one human nature. There are multiple natures. Question for you. So we're armed with this knowledge. How to, tell us how it becomes a tool for living. How can we go about our lives differently now that we've better informed about what our brains are about? Yeah, so I think that once you understand a little bit about how your brain works, and you also understand that your brain is a, like a master of deception, it seamlessly creates experiences for you and gives you confidence that these experiences reveal how it works when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. So knowing a little bit, in addition to the fact that, you know, you will become um, the life of the party when we can go back to having parties, you know, we can um, delight our friends um, with little fun tidbits at dinner parties and so on about how brains work. I think there are some real potential lessons here. So for example, and it's hard to sort of pith, it's hard to say this in a very pithy, concise way, because I think it really works on an example by example basis. So uh, for an example, when your infant throws their Cheerios on the floor for the 99th time, remember that 
this infant's brain is wiring itself to its world. The infant's probably learning about physics, probably learning about gravity. And it's also, the, the child's also learning about your responsiveness to um, the child. So, you know, my husband and I, when our daughter was very young, and she, you know, it's, it's not really a good idea to think about children as trying to manipulate you. But if you do think of it that way, because really what they're trying to do is have agency in the world. They're trying mm -hmm. to see an effect of their own behavior. But if you do think of it that way, you should be at times applauding it rather than trying to um, subvert it. Because that is a really, that means that, that that child's brain is learning how to be an effective agent in the world. And while it may annoy you when the child is four, you will be delighted by it when the child is 20, you know, turns out to be 25. So that's like one example. Or another example would be, I think, um, I don't know how you've been faring these days. Um, I know I am feeling at times very weary. And sometimes I feel like I just, I just, you know, things just feel tremendously burdensome. And, you know, rates of depression are going up, which you could think of that as a some, you know, a bankrupt body budget, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do about it? Well, or, or, you know, things seem so uncertain, which leads to um, an increase in certain chemicals, which you experience as sort of a increase in arousal, not sexual arousal, but like agitation and um, kind of being worked up. And, you know, we have go to ways of making sense of these um, sensations you know, feeling worked up is anxiety, feeling really weary and dragged out is depression. And um, that, you know, before these go on for a really long time and become clinical disorders, um, there's an opportunity to intervene differently if you understand really what's happening. So when I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling particularly weary, my first thought is what's going on with my body budget? Hmm. Do I need to sleep more? Do I need to go out for a walk? Am I dehydrated? Do I need a hug from, from, you know, from my husband? Do I need to give my daughter a hug? So do I need to do something nice for somebody else, which turns out to be actually somewhat of a deposit in your body budget and theirs, the research suggests. So instead of making, um, instead of making sense of my sensations as negative emotions, which would lead me down one set of um, actions, I am thinking in terms of my physical body budgeting and I'm making meaning of these sensations as physical in relation to physical body budgeting, which leads me down a different set of a, a path for a different set of actions. And if you understand that you can make different choices for yourself, mm -hmm. um, which will, um, ultimately give you more control over your well-being. And I just want to be really clear. I'm not saying that, you know, you can just snap your fingers and then, you know, take like post-traumatic stress disorder and evaporate it or, or a clinical depression. But I, I am saying that on a day-to-day -day basis for things that are not at that clinical level, we have a lot more control over our well-being and the well-being of those around us if we understand um, exactly a little bit more about how our brains work. You're teaching us to think like a neuroscientist and use those neuroscientific principles on ourselves. Lisa, one last question. So um, is, that, is that your goal with this book? Is that, is that what, what do you want people to take away from this? Is it that ability to um, 
think about their think about their brains in a different way and use that to regulate their lives more effectively? Yeah, I think I want there are two sorts of things I want people to take away. One is I want people to have fun. I want people to in you know read the book and enjoy um, learning some really fun, cool things. Neuroscience is cool. Science is cool. I think we've a little bit forgotten that, or maybe some people have. You know, we scientists get portrayed as kind of stupid or evil in movies, but science is is actually really cool. And um, I think everyone right now could use a little bit of a break um, and uh, you know learn something really neat about your own brain. You know, about that three pound blob between your ears. So in one sense, it's really about showing people how much fun you can have with neuroscience. And, um, but I think that there's a deeper message too. And the deeper message is you can also use neuroscience to think about the kind of human that you want to be there. You know, you are more responsible for your behavior than you might know and, or like, and you are also more responsible for the well-being of other people than you might know or want. And that includes children, but not not limited to children. And I think there are many, many, many opportunities for you to be your best self, whatever that means to you. So the lessons aren't written to tell you what to do. They're more written to get you to think about um, who you want to be and and the ways and provide you with tools to get there, basically. The book is seven and a half lessons about the brain it will help you become a better human being if you apply the lessons of neuroscience to your own life lisa it has been a joy to hallucinate with you here this afternoon. <laughs> i'm happy to hallucinate with you anytime Dan. <laughs> Want more great content from Daniel Pink, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and other brainy authors? Visit nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you join now, you'll get a free copy of Next Big Idea Club curator Adam Grant's new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Great book. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Shout out to Brian Burrell. His book, Postcards from the Brain Museum, provided some of the fascinating details about Einstein's brain that we used at the top of the show. Special thanks to Daniel Pink and Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa's new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is out now. We love hallucinating together on this show. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Emma Erdbrink. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.